for as far as you can see, you really can't. It's just ribbons, currents of distortion coming off of the rock piles and the, the shale. It's what happens when the Middle Eastern sun has scorched the land. Everything in the distance just seems to be a blur. It's, it's been like that for miles now. Miles with the heat beating down of you. Miles with hands that are tied together, so worn by the rope that now it's rubbed your wrist raw and bloodied. The thought of just raising them up to wipe your face has excruciating pain, so you allow them just to hang and be tied with the other prisoners. It is the screams from the day before that seem to be a constant companion on this journey. And no matter how many times you try to get them out of your head, you can't. They are the soundtrack to what your eyes have just watched. It has been city after city after city. As the mercenaries that hold you hostage roll into another town, they make a point to enforce their wrath, their power, their might. They make it a point to let you know you too have been taken captive. It was three cities ago. The two leaders were brought out, tied to stakes, and set on fire. The entire town had to gather and watch. This is what happens when you go against Babylon. Another king of the tribe has been brought to his knees. His hands are tied behind his back. With a knife to his throat, a man holds his beer and his scalp. His entire family is brought before him. Every woman, child, daughter, and son is cut into small pieces. And then with the blade, they pluck out both of his eyes. And they chain him to the rest of the prisoners. They want his last images to be the pieces of his family in front of them. Oh, they will let him live. But it's a life he doesn't want to have. These stories are picked up in Jeremiah 25, 29, 39. We have, we have watched briefly what happens when you have to cover 500 miles back home. And every dot on the map, every civilization, every tribe, every country has to feel the wrath of Babylon. And along the way, a few are picked up and taken. Just to remind you, if you ever revolt, just to remind you, if the people back home ever time to uprise, we have the best of the best with us, and they're yours. And every mile from home reminds you, your God didn't work. Have you been there? Maybe the hardest thing to do as a pastor is to sit with the families in hours where they feel like their God didn't work. What's the use praying for cancer? What's the use getting a church to pray for cancer? What's the use of the Bible study praying for cancer just to find out at the end of a very long journey that cancer kills? And I have to stand with a book in my hand in front of a freshly dug hole. and make sense out of why there's a loving God? When no matter how much you prayed, tumors still grow. 
when no matter how much you brought it up to your youth group and they promised to pray with you, marriage is still split. And every mile from home reminds you, you have a puny God and he doesn't work. And the closer you get to Babylon, the more you start to see and feel what it has to offer. Babylon the Great, the largest city in the known world at that time, an expanse of civilization that offers everything. As these prisoners get closer and closer, they'll start to make out the huge walls that surround the center of the city, 60 miles of walls, reaching points up to 300 feet high, 40 to 80 feet wide. You can ride chariots on top of them. Oh, Babylon makes it a point to let you know we own the world. This is the epicenter. It is the best of human politics, the best of human academia. It is the best of literature, the best of libraries, the best of scholarly settings. It is the best of gardens, the best of aqueducts. Babylon has whatever you've been dreaming of, whatever you wanted. It's all here within the walls. And there's somewhere between the age of 12 and 17, according to the Hebrew words we have. They're teenagers, far from home. And everything in their life tells them God doesn't work. Look, you tried that. And look where you ended up. And now they're taken inside the walls. Daniel, chapter 1. You should have something in there by now. Daniel, chapter 1. We finished the first two verses where they kicked God's butt and they took all the articles from his temple. We'll pick it up in verse 3, although we covered it briefly this morning. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language, the literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's own table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now among these were some from Judah, the southern part of Israel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Fishgut. Nope, not in the Bible. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And our journey of four teenagers that will change a kingdom and kingdoms begins. And Babylon lets you know right off the bat, this is what we're about. We're about youthfulness. We want youthfulness. We want that appearance of young. We want all the vitality of being young. We want all the sexuality that you get when you are young. And to do that, we want to make sure we get bodies, not just any bodies. You got to have a good body. We want hard bodies. And it's not just the body, it's the face on top. You got to be good looking. We don't want you to have any defects. We want you to be strong. We want you to be attractive. And we want you to come from something. We want you to have something. We want you to have some sort of platform. We want you to have some sort of reputation. And on top of that, you better be good at something. These showing aptitude for all kinds of learning and all kinds of skills. And this is what we are gonna prize in our culture in Babylon. Young, good looking, great bodies, and you better be good at something. Man, aren't you glad we don't have a culture like Babylon. <laughs> 
Wow. Not much has changed. Babylon, again, one of the oldest cities in the world, all the way back to chapter 10 in the very first book of the Bible, the Tower of Babel, Babylon. Babylon, the absolute best of humanity. Babylon, the best of philosophy and religion that the world can come up with. Babylon, what do you want? Well, I, I want to live for my lust. I want to live for my desires. I want to live for what pleases me. And Babylon says, that's our billboard. When you drive into the city, there's a big sign that says what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. And by the way, now that we own the world, everything is Babylon. But to make sure that you fit in, we got to change some things about you. You see, what we want you to do is be educated in Babylon. We want you to identify with Babylon. We want your reputation to be Babylon. We want to change your name to make sure that you are Babylon. We want to make sure you have a full diet of Babylon. We want to make sure that everything you scroll through and everything you swipe and everything you click on, once again, enforces, it's all about you. Be your own God. Make your own choice. What are you going to do? Turn to Jesus? Are you kidding me? You're going to be a prude and a loser. You're going to be old-fashioned. What do you want to be a virgin until you get married? You know what you're missing out on? It's ridiculous. And for what? For a God that you pray to and he doesn't work. For a God that you give your faith to and he doesn't come through. Can you look at what he did? That's right, nothing. And can you look what we offer inside these walls? Come on, teenagers. Do what you want. I mean, don't hurt people. Don't hurt yourself. But with common sense, which we all have. Do what you want. Be your own God. Set your own course. This is the best of human nature. This is the best the world can offer. You want athletics? We have athletics. You want academia? We have academia. You want religion? We have gods and goddesses. Knock yourself out with religion. You want the arts? We have arts. You want music? We have the music. You want scholarship? We have the best scholars in the world. What is it you want? Make sure you take care of what your body wants. Welcome to Babylon. But here's the problem. You're named different. <laughs> You're called different. That's not going to work real well in Babylon. So we got to change your names. You see, when we, when we simply look at the names, Daniel means God will be judge. So we're going to change your name to Belshazzar, which means may Baal protect your life. One of our gods will take care of that for you. Hananiah means Yahweh, the one true creator God. The original Big Bang is gracious. Shadrach means the, under the command of Aku, our moon god. Mishael means who is what God is. In other words, who can compare to God? Meshach is now going to mean who is what Aku is. Azariah means whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, helps. And Abednego, your new name, means servant of Nebo. See, we're going to take your Hebrew name. We're going to take your identity that there is one God, one true God, and you are his. And we're going to change that. We're going to change your identity. We're going to change your reputation. We're going to make sure that in this system, you feed on the world. You identify with the world. You educate yourself in the world. And we're just going to change who you're created to be. 
We're going to change whose image you bear, what name you have. And in that, we're going to change how you live, and we're going to change your purpose. Now, let me ask you something. It's rhetorical. I don't expect you to raise your hands on this. I'm kind of impressed there. Chubby guy jumped off by himself, and I didn't break anything. So was I. I was like, what am I doing in midair? And I'm like, it's too late. You're going down. Hey, Balcony, I didn't forget about you. You sat up there not to watch you anyway. I get you. There we go. Let me ask you a question. It's rhetorical. Yeah, I know you can't answer. We can't do it in a room. We can't start here and go around. But do you have those answers? Do you know who you're created to be? Do you understand and know whose image you are in? Because that tells you you have a purpose. There is a plan for you. And it tells you you have value. And I don't care what the magazine racks say. I don't care what the mirror says about your body. I don't care what our culture says is sexy or good. I don't care what your school system says is popular. I don't care what the reputation is. You have a value. You have a worth that's been given to you, made from the very beginning. By the original Big Bang that says, you are in my image. And I'm not going to call you slave. I'm going to call you son. I'm going to call you daughter. I'm going to allow you to be part of something that is beyond you. I'm going to allow you to be part of something that's bigger than you. I'm going to allow you to be part of something that's going to live long after you are gone. I'm going to allow you to be part of something significant, not just for this life, not for 50 years, not for your next 60, not for your next 80 years. I'm going to allow you to be a part of sovereignty. A God that bought a piece of real estate. 4,000 years before it was valuable because he knew the empire was coming. A God that says, even if you don't listen to me and even after 23 years of rejecting me, I'm only going to put you in captivity, but I'm bringing you back because I have a purpose that's bigger than you. You can be a part of God's plan or not, but the invitation is there. Do you understand when Psalms 139 says that God knit you together in your mother's womb, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that all of his days, your days were ordained for you, and he knows each and every one of them. He has a purpose for you. He has a role that you play. You know why you're weird? You know why you're kind of a geek, kind of a nerd, kind of an athlete, kind of a musician? You know why you have the mind you do, whether you think it's great or you think it's lame? Do do you know why you're built the way you're built? Do you know why your nose is the size it is? Do you know why your bone structure is the size it is? Do you know why you are made uniquely you? Because there is a purpose that you play. You are a piece that no one else can play. And you have that. And Babylon says you got to get over that. You got to fall in line with whatever you desire, whatever you want, and we're going to take you away from this understanding that you're in God's image, that you serve God, that God protects, that God delivers. It's ludicrous. Click, watch, swipe, digest constantly. Babylon, Babylon. Oh, oh, you can still go to church midweek, but it won't impact the other six and a half days. You can still call yourself a Christian, but you're fully culture. And you know what the scariest thing is for your generation? The greatest fear that each and every one of you have in common? Simply missing out. 
not being a part of. <laughs> and that's why we all hold on to these devices. I'll give it right back, don't worry. Because this device represents not what's in here, it represents everything that's out there. And no matter who I'm with and what I'm doing, I don't want to leave it alone. I don't want to be gone from it because there's stuff happening out there. People are doing stuff out there. People are with who and what's going on and why wasn't I there and why didn't I know about it? And oh my God, how did she get in that picture? And you had your phone out and you're actually taking notes on me. Nice job, buddy. Because <laughs> I was just pretending to swipe. I'm not about to swipe a teenager's phone nowadays. I could lose my job for that crap. I'm like, I ain't going there. This, this, this is a constant connection. Now, people, I'm not saying we got to burn our phones. I'm not saying we got to get rid of it. I got a phone. I love the contact I have with my team, my staff, and work. But I carry Babylon in my pocket. Hey, remember, remember when some of you used to control the internet and now it controls you? Remember when some of you could resist Babylon? And now I know how many times you say, I'm not going back there, I'm not clicking, I'm not watching, I'm not opening it up. Oh, it's gotten a hold of us. See, not a lot has changed, folks. We're going to change your names. It's a three-year university, Babylon University. It's a three-year program. You're going to learn our mathematics. You're going to learn our economy. You're going to learn all of our arithmetic. You're going to learn all of our literature. You're going to learn our way of commerce. We are going to train you, educate you. You're going to be ranked with magicians and sorcerers. We're about to see that as we turn the next few pages in the, in the days to come. And in that then, you are going to learn astrology, and you are going to learn astronomy, and you are going to learn the dark arts, and you are going to learn black magic. You're going to learn how to take an old sheep and slice him open and get his liver out Split it in half and lay it open, and you're going to be able to foretell the future and help people with that. We're going to teach you all of our divination and sorcery. And Babylon was the epicenter of the best of the best. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, welcome to college. Somewhere around the age of 16, 17, they step into Babylon U, and their names are changed. And their classes are changed, and the culture is changed. And from my podunk farming community in Israel, this place is amazing. And here's where it turns. But Daniel resolved, circle, highlight, underline, resolved, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm, man, I'm, a, I'm afraid of my Lord the king. He, he's assigned your food and assigned your drink. When, when, when he sees you looking worse than all the other young men your age, the king's gonna have my head because of you. Now, that's, not, that's no joke. The, the official in charge of this freshman class, he knows Nebuchadnezzar. Just like the guy, these guys have seen Jeremiah 29, 39. They've seen Nebuchadnezzar just put people on sticks and throw them in the fire. They've seen Nebuchadnezzar drop someone to their knees and slice all their family up in little pieces and then pluck out your eyes. Just so that's the last image you have for the rest of your life. Nebuchadnezzar's no joke. 
And, and Daniel pushes away from the cafeteria table and goes, look, I can't eat this. I can't drink this. And the Bible doesn't say why. We've, we've got some pretty good educa- educated guesses, but I'm like, really? They're changing your name? You're, they're teaching you astrology, astronomy. They're teaching you black arts, the dark magic. And when it comes to ribeye and wine, that's where you draw the line? <laughs> that's where I finally got excited to be a freshman. <laughs> when do we get in the cafeteria? Ribeye and wine. Amen. Well, seriously, they got an all-you-can-drink wine bar. They got ribeyes. See, the, the food that the king ate, especially back then, is so much different than the food that the populace ate. The king is allowed to bring in stuff that you can't without refrigeration. You just can't. The, the king's table is radically different than any table you've ever sat at. And the Bible makes it clear. They were given the diet, the food from the king's own table. Now, now I love one of my favorite authors and commentators, David Guzik. He, he said it this way. He said, Daniel did not object to the name given to him because he knew who he was. You could call him what you liked. And Daniel did not object to the Babylonian education because he knew what he believed. Daniel did object to the food from the king's table because to eat it was direct disobedience to God's word. Why? Does the Bible say you can't have wine? No. In fact, Jesus made the best wine. The Bible says don't get drunk. I don't care what you drink, don't get drunk. So why? Maybe there's a couple things. There's kosher laws. These Jewish people have some really weird laws. Most of it's found in a book way back here called Leviticus. Don't read it because it's disturbing. You're like, what the heck? Don't worry. For Christ followers today, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, doesn't, most of it doesn't apply to us. But remember, until they got to this point, God wanted a group of people to live totally separate, totally apart from the world. In fact, when you even walked into the territory, you should stop and go, oh, this is different. <laughs> this is different. These people dress different. These people look different. So there's all kinds of chapters on the type of linen you can wear, and you can't mix wool and cotton and stuff like that. There's all these chapters on the length of your hair. Why? Because God wanted to show the world this is what it looks like to have an amazing relationship with the Father. This is what it looks like to walk in loving others and walk in loving God. Now, again, as we learned this morning, people did a terrible job of following that, but that was God's desire. So the moment you walked into the territory, you should go, this is weird. You ever been to a part of the country where the Amish people live? You ever seen the Amish, horse and buggies in the way, and you stop and go, I don't know much about Amish, but that'd be one. How do you know? Different. Horse, buggy, black, black hat, different. Set apart. Set apart. God said, look, it's not about your hair and your hat and your clothing. I want you to daily learn to be set apart. You're going to be different than the culture around you. And one of those rules was issues of blood, especially Leviticus 15. Don't read that. I don't know why I said it out loud. He's going right now for it. Hope my Bible's got pictures. The Bible has a whole chapter on bodily fluids that you don't touch with bodily fluids. You don't mess with bodily fluids. It's got this whole long thing about a woman's menstrual cycle. When she's bleeding, anything she touches is unclean. Any place she sits is unclean. And for a period of time, no matter what she touches, where she sits, it's deemed unclean. And you're like, what did the Bible have against women? 
Oh my gosh, if you're not familiar with reading scripture, the scripture is the only and first book that has come into every culture and elevated women and given them their worth and their value. Every culture. I am so sorry because it is one of my buttons and pet peeves when everyone's like, what's the Bible got against women? I'm like, do you understand the Greek and Roman world? Do you understand how radical scripture says when it says she is equal, you also submit to her? Do you understand the value given to women? He goes, this is not demeaning to women. Look, look, Jews, listen to me. How you kill your animals. I married a Jew. She's sitting in the back. My kids are half Jewish, so they're half chosen. They're like half chosen, half prayer request, so it's a good balance. (laughs) So I married into a Jewish family, which is amazing. And for every good Jewish boy and girl, they got this. Now look, they didn't understand the reasoning behind dumb laws in the Bible. They just knew they couldn't mess with blood, and they knew how they killed an animal had to be kosher. Kosher. How you had to separate the blood from the animal before he did anything with the meat of the animal. Why? Because the Bible is filled with stupid rules for 3,200 years. 3,200 years after Moses wrote stupid rules, a guy named Louis Pasteur came along and developed a whole new science, not biology, not macrobiology, We knew we had living things. We knew there were big living things, like trees and elephants and me. But he developed another science, microbiology. 3,200 years after Leviticus gave dumb laws, science finally cut up to it and said, you know what? We probably shouldn't mess with bodily fluids. There are small organisms living amongst us, on us, in us. Any of your parents a first responder? Anybody? Then you get it. I don't care how tragic the accident. I don't care how bad the scene. No one who is trained steps in without gloving up and many times masking up or shielding up. You don't mess with blood. 3,200 years before science caught up with it. God said it's gonna seem dumb Just trust me, we don't mess with blood. It'll save you for thousands of years. One day I'll look like a genius. For now, it's just another reason you shake your head at the Bible. Oh, listen, generation, I promise you, there are things this book is telling you, inviting you to walk in, that you're gonna look at and say that is ridiculous. I'm supposed to save myself till marriage? That's stupid. Everyone knows sex is fun. Of course it's fun. God gave it to you as a wedding present. He gives the best gifts. Why in the heck? Just be safe. See, we're smarter now. Be safe. God's going to give you rules about how to treat enemies, how to treat your body, how to treat others' bodies. And you're going to look at it and go, that is ridiculous. Why? Because you're trained in Babylon. You're fed on Babylon. And God says, trust me. I created life. I'm the original Big Bang. I know how marriage is supposed to work. Do it your way. And you're going to have the best marriage you can do. Trust me. Trust me that maybe the creator and the inventor knows better. Do it my way. And you can have the best marriage that I can do. And what have you seen in Babylon today? To find healthy, strong marriages, even in our churches today. 
seems almost laughable. Why? We're consumed with our way. We're smart enough. We know better. And I'm sorry, Big G, but some of your rules just seem antiquated, old-fashioned, outdated, and, and may I say rather stupid. And you're allowed to be king, ruler of your life. Scariest thing I know about God, he'll let you live your life your way. He will. He won't hijack you. He won't kidnap you. He won't spiritually climb into your life and force you to follow him. He will allow you to have your identity, your thoughts, your body image, your relationship, your marriage. He's given you free will. Or you can have his. I made you in my image. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The New Testament says you are God's poema. You get that? Uh, we have that word in English. You are God's poem. You are God's physical manuscript of love. And he goes, I want to give you that value. I want to give you worth. I want to give you purpose. I want to give you that identity. And Babylon screams, we're going to change your name. We're going to change your purpose. We're going to change your identity. We're going to change what you feed on. We're going to change what you associate with. And there's something in my body and yours that says, that sounds good. That sounds right. That sounds better. That sounds easier, doesn't it? And maybe Daniel said, look, I can be in your system and you can change me outwardly, but who I am in here, you can't touch. And what's on this plate and what's in this cup, I don't know how it was sacrificed. It was offered undoubtedly to your gods and eating the king's food shows relationship contractually association with the king. Maybe a combination, maybe one, maybe all three. And when the ribeye and the wine gets put in front of him, Daniel realizes, I've got a choice to make. But, but 2 Kings 25 says over 10,000 young women and men were taken to Babylon. He was picked in the best and the brightest and the sexiest and the most youthful and the best body. But it's a large cafeteria. And if you go against Nebuchadnezzar, well, people have only done that once. And they're not around to tell about it, except for the guy with no eyes. And you don't want to hear his story. And we're not told how, but I've been around enough cafeterias, a campus pastor at a university for many years. I know how this works. There's a conversation. <clears throat> hey, guys, guys, we can't do this. What do you mean you can't do it? We can't do this. Who says you know why? You shut up, you eat. They're eating, you eat. I'm not eating. You're going to die. Then I'm going to die. That's stupid. What good are you if you're dead? I don't know. What good am I if I'm alive and I live a lot? I can't do this. Who's with me? Shadrach sitting across the table, two seats to the left. Shadrach hasn't touched his plate. He didn't have the courage to say anything, but he's been thinking it. 
And Shadrach looks at Dan and Dan's Dan, I'm in. Thanks, man. What's your name? Shadrach. Friends call me Shady. Good to meet you, Shady. <laughs> Shady, I'm about to stand. Shady, please stand up. Please stand up. <laughs> Come on. You know I had to. I had to. I had to. Meshach's been sitting on the same side of the table, three seats down, and he's over their thing. And Meshach says, I swear to God, if you two stand up, I'm standing with you. And this is Abednego. We call him little Nego. He'll stand up with me. How do you know that? He's been following me for 500 miles. He does everything I do. He doesn't say much, but every time I turn around, he's right there. Little Neg, are you with us? And Neg's like, yeah, I'm going, man. Shadrach, Meshach, Nego, they're all there. And Daniel pushes away from the table and he stands up. Maybe a bad term on Nego, was it? Just came out. <laughs> Don't read anything into that. I was trying to shorten names like Shady. My apologies. I should write this stuff down ahead of time. And somewhere in a crowded cafeteria, Danny, Shady, Meshach, and Go. <laughs> Push their trays away and they take a stand. Now listen, let me promise you, on that day, on that day, they did not realize that a couple chapters from now there would be a fiery furnace. They didn't. On that day, they had no idea that five chapters from now there'd be a lion's den. They didn't. On that day, they didn't think they were climbing their way to the top of the class. On that day, they thought they were going to be dismissed permanently from the class. But Daniel purposed in his heart, there's a point where I don't go with culture. And this is that point. And in a cafeteria filled with Hebrews, filled with Jewish people, filled with those that came from Israel, only four stand. We finish our chapter to pick up tomorrow night's, and it simply says this. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetable to eat, water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this. He tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. It's their final exam. And he found none equal to Daniel, to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom, understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Now, now it, it seems like, well, everything worked out great. But that last line says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. We know historically Cyrus the Great doesn't become king until 539. That's 540. Let's round up. Because the battle of Carchemish happened back in 605. So let's say 40 to 60 is is 60. And then the 5 is 65. But we took one year to round up. 66 years. For 66 years, he stayed in captivity. For 66 years, he stayed exile in Babylon. It's not, hey, Daniel stood for God and everything was great, and God sent him home with a wagon full of gold. Boys and girls, boys and girls, look, look, listen, listen, look, look, listen, listen. You stand up for God, and he's going to make you rich and famous. But that's not there. One, they stood for God thinking they were going to die. Two, they stood for God, and God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you in slavery. for 66 years. You've heard what happened. Let me just give you the four points in case you didn't catch it all on your phone. Number one is simply this. You wanna be used by God in an amazing way. You wanna get back away from culture and back to Christ. You wanna be someone that comes back to this plan of this sovereign God. The first thing we have to do is purpose in our heart that we're gonna be different. I love the old language in that, that, that Daniel purposed in his heart not to be tainted by the world. I'm going to live in this culture, but this culture is not going to rub off on me. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be set apart. And I know the greatest fear you have is to be different than the rest of teenagers, different than the rest of culture. But can you see where culture is going and what it produces? Please tell me you have the brains to be different. We can't keep following this path. And the first thing you have to do is commit in your heart. There's lines I'm not going to cross. I'm not going to defile myself that way. I'm not going to be tainted by culture. Second thing, what goes with that is that you got to allow that commitment to impact every area of your life. Every area of your life. Being a Christian is not a religion. Being a Christian is who you are. Being a Christian is not a religion. Being a Christian is whose you are. Saying that you're a Christian is not a belief. We're going to cover that in a couple nights. It's not a belief. Saying you're a Christian is saying, in every pore of who I am, I'm a follower of Christ. My life is lived and governed and given to Christ because of his incredible love for me and what he's done to sacrifice for me and the life that he's given me in return, so I give him mine. It involves everything in my life, everything I touch and who I touch and where I go and what I watch and what I see. It's not a place I go on Sunday or a place I go on Wednesday night or youth group. It's not a box I check on a census of what religion are you? You Muslim? You Hindu? Confucius? Taoist? Judaism? Christian? It's not a philosophy or thought that you agree with more than others. You are a Christian. I am one whose life completely follows, envelops, and who is enveloped by Christ. And Daniel said that affects who I am in the cafeteria. And if you're going to get to a point where you commit in your heart that I'm going to follow Christ and you realize that commitment's going to do impact every area of your life, then you better choose wisely who you sit with. Because if you show me your friends, I'll tell you if you'll stand. Oh, young ladies, be smart. You show me who your boyfriend is and I'll tell you if you can stand. 
Guys, you show me who your girlfriend is. I'll tell you if you can stand. You show me who your friends are and who you sit with. And I'll tell you if you can stand or not. You know why I can't take a stand in the locker room? I'm scared to death for those guys to see me as different. I'm scared to death that they change my reputation. You know why you can't take a stand at school? Because you don't have a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Would Daniel have stood by himself that day? Maybe. I don't know. I know scripture made it clear. Four of them at that cafeteria table said, whatever these next three years hold for us, we're not going to let culture get to us. We're going to maintain our Christian identity. We're going to be followers of this one great God. And some of us are far more worried about our friendships than our faith. And we're making terrible choices because of that. And we wonder why I live in a culture and a home and a life where God doesn't exist because I've created my culture where God doesn't exist. And he only shows up where he's invited and where he's allowed to work. And then fourth, lastly, we've got to live it out regardless of the outcome. We live it out regardless of the outcome. They had no idea what was going to turn out. We're going to follow three of these guys making another life choice decision as we turn the page. They're choosing to follow their faith regardless of the outcome. Do you know why I love God? It's because of what he's already done for me. And no one told me that growing up. I grew up in West Texas, just hunting and fishing. I grew up in West Texas shooting anything that moved. That's just what we did. We lived out in the desert. And I grew up going to a little church in the south where the pastor would get in a suit and he would preach every week that I've got to love God and I've got to love God. And there's some invisible God out there that somehow owns me. He doesn't like who I am. He doesn't like what I'm doing, but I got to love him. No wonder why I left that religion. I'm a thick-headed, hard-hearted West Texas dude. It's hard for me to love almost anything. I don't. I'm not real good with emotion. I'm great sharing with groups, and I'm terrible sharing in small groups and one-on-one. My wife will tell you. I'm not great at loving things. I'm good at hurting things. <laughs> and somewhere into my 20s, Someone walked me through the book of 1 John that says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice just to pay for anything I've done in life to get me back. You know, I started reading the Bible again, and every time God shows up and called people to follow him, he always reminded people what he did first. He always does that. He showed up to Israel and says, look, remind these people. I broke him free from slavery. I brought him out of Egypt. I brought Pharaoh to his knees. I hit that land with plagues. Remind them that I saved them, that I'm taking them to a land, that I'm going to protect them, I'm going to provide them. Remind them of all that, and then invite them to follow me. This week, one of my challenges is to try to get you to understand what God has already done for you and how much he already loves you. 
it's easier to love someone that is deeply, madly, passionately in love with you first than to love someone who's angry at you because of how you're living. Daniel walked with that God. In the cafeteria his freshman year, when he was around the age of 16 or 17, because of what this God has done for me, even though it looks like the world is kicking his butt, I know who he is. And I'm not letting him go. And I need a couple of you to stand with me. This is going to be a challenge. I want to make that commitment in my heart. That's not going to be a religion I claim. It's going to go into everything that I do in life. I'm going to make that commitment regardless of what the outcome is. And 2 Chronicles 16.9 simply says, The eyes of God are searching throughout the land, looking for a heart that's devoted to him. Why do I get excited about reading ancient literature to you? Because I'm a fan of ancient literature. (laughs) Nope. Because you love history and writing on the board. Nope. Hate history. Because you love archaeology. Nope. Ancient civilizations. No. Because you just like reading. I suck at reading. I don't read good. I don't pull thought out of print. I got problem reading. My ADD runs rampant. There's nine monkeys right now all trying to get out and do something different. I make up words and I make shortcuts on words. And after I do that and see the crowd, I realize, was that a bad word to use for a bed and a go? I don't know what I'm doing up here. And another little monkey in the back starts hitting a symbol and saying, you may want to say something. I'm like, why? What's that have to go with? And the whole time I'm still teaching. And that happens constantly in my life. So why do I do that? Because if the Big Bang was a God, not a vast explosion of nothingness, if there is an artist behind every sunset and sunrise, every landscape, every waterfall, if there is a designer behind the intricate design of life, if there is a God that size, The Bible says he's never changed. He hasn't gotten smarter, hasn't gotten older, hasn't gotten wiser, hasn't gotten better. Therefore, the way God dealt with teenagers back then is the way God deals with teenagers now. And the eyes of God are seeking throughout our land in our American culture, hoping there's a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 15-year-old that's willing to say, I'm in. I'm in. Because that's all he needed to change two kingdoms, seven kings, 66 years of history then. And I have the privilege of teaching that old book this week. Because I'm dumb enough or bright enough, you decide, to know that's how he works tonight. He just wants to know. Do you want to be in his story? Or do you really want to continue yours? I mean, you got a lot to lose. Look at yourself. You're the best Babylon has to offer. But look at the road and what it's led to. Father, may this week we be wise about that choice and what you have for us. May this be a week 
you do something in here with a young lady, a young man, that 30 years from now, they will go back to this week and say, that is when I changed my identity. That is when I changed my worth, my purpose, my value. May you do something this week in the lives of some of these students that will change marriages, homes, businesses, and communities decades from now. May you do something this week in the lives of these students that will change the population of eternity because they will open hearts, eyes, minds to simply be committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen.